Take your Bibles, turn to me to the book of James, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18 today. We're in the midst of a series where we're just walking through the book of James, excited about where this is going to take us over the next several weeks as we look at the most practical book in the New Testament. And today we're going to talk a little bit about temptation, but we're also going to talk a little bit about our ability to make excuses. I don't know whether you know this or not, but most of us in this room are really good at making excuses. Now we're able to come up with reasons that we aren't, we didn't do what we're supposed to do. I read an article this week, the Washington Post surveyed a group of employers to find out the most frequent excuses that they heard. And they found some normal excuses, as you would imagine. The most frequent one was traffic, just traffic was bad, couldn't quite get there. Um, oversleeping was there, or weather delays, things were happening with the weather. But they also got some fairly interesting responses from excuses they've heard. For instance, somebody said that they were here, they were at work, but they just fell asleep in the parking lot. Somebody else said that their fake eyelashes were stuck together, and so they had to take care of that. Another wrote that an astrologer warned them that there was going to be a major traffic accident that day, so they took all the back roads. But perhaps the most interesting was that somebody wrote in that they had morning sickness. It was a male. Some of you will get that joke later. That's all right, all right? So we're good at making excuses. And, you know, getting late to work is one thing, but we're also good at making excuses about the moral failings in our lives, about the sin in our lives, about things that we do that are not what God would intend. And sometimes we, we blame circumstances. You know, I was, uh, I was only speeding because the guy behind me was right on my, my tail. And if I didn't speed, he was going to run over me. So I had to go over the speed limit officer. I'm sorry about that. Or sometimes we, we, we talk about, well, you know, the thing is, you know, I, I wouldn't have said the things I said if she hadn't said the things she said to me. I was just responding to her. It's not really my fault. If she hadn't said those things, I would have never said those things. Sometimes we even kind of blame God. We blame God for putting things in our lives. God, if you didn't want me to go to that website, you wouldn't have given me the desires and you wouldn't have made it so easy to do. Or God, you know, I came to you and really needed you to come through in this situation and you didn't. And that's why I got mad and that's why I acted that way. Sometimes we blame God's enemy, Satan. We will say, well, the devil just made me do it. And today we're going to find out that in spite of all the excuses that we can come up with, Scripture makes it very clear that the people responsible for the sin in our lives are us. That we are the ones that are responsible for our sins. In fact, when you and I yield to temptation, we have nobody else to blame but ourselves. No one. Not God. Not Satan. Not your mom and dad, not your genes, not your uh, elementary school teacher that made you stand in front of the class, not the, not the actors in the movie you saw that you shouldn't have watched in the first place. In fact, we're going to find out today the ultimate responsibility for sin lies in the individual human heart. As many places we'll try to place it, as many places we'll try to push it, that we will find out that we are responsible for our own sin. In fact, we are the ones that must confront what's happening in our lives in order to allow God to have the victory in our lives of over temptation. And as we think about our responsibility 
for sin that lies in our human heart, there are three things that I want to do out of James chapter 1 today. I want to look, first of all, at where temptation does come from. What's the origin of temptation? And then I want to look at how it works in our lives. How does temptation work in our lives? And then finally, where does the hope we have come from in the midst of temptation? And I just want to tell you that the first part of this sermon is probably not going to be real pleasant. We're going to talk about some things that are true about us. We're going to talk about the ways that the, the enemy sometimes attacks us. But there is hope at the end. So stick with me as we kind of walk through this passage of Scripture as we look at what God is doing and how God operates in our temptation. James chapter 1, starting in verse 12. First thing we're going to see here is that temptation begins with us. Temptation begins with us. Look at verse 12 there. It says, blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And so it starts by where we ended last week. If you were here last week, we ended on this verse last week and we talked about the reward that comes for those that stand up underneath trials. And the reason I wanted to start here this week is because he has just finished a section, chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, where he's talked about the reality of trials in our lives. That we all walk through trials. That we all have exterior circumstances, external circumstances in our lives that make our lives difficult. We all have issues that come. Well, we have health concerns. We all have family situations. We all have trials in our lives. And he has just gone through this whole description of that our trials are opportunities for us to grow, that God is in control even in the midst of our trials. And those opportunities for us to grow, we must take advantage of. We must seize the day. And so as he starts this next verse, he's going to remind us of that as we start this next section, that this is all under God's control. But he can see the people's minds spinning. If everything that happens in my life is from God, does that mean that God is also responsible for evil things that tempt me? And he quickly says in verse 13 that that's not the case. No one, he says. Do you know what no one means? No one. Undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. It's interesting because it's like James is flowing through this argument about trials, about the opportunities trials afford us. Even when he talks in verses 9 and 10, about uh, 11, about how we depend on God and not depend on our riches or the things that we have in this world, that we depend on God and that in the midst of that we can trust God. And it's almost like he takes a U-turn. It's almost like he, he changes directions rather abruptly and says, and by the way, don't be thinking in your head that if you're tempted, it's of God. Now, he's not saying God won't test us at times, and we'll talk about the difference in that in a minute. In fact, he's just told us a whole bunch about God's testing us, allowing us to go through trials. Scripture makes it very clear that God will test his people occasionally, that he will allow things into our lives, not for our bad, not for evil, but for good, for opportunities for us to respond to them in the right way. In the Old Testament, I think about the story of Abraham and Isaac, where God tested Abraham by calling him to sacrifice his son. Now, obviously, he did not let him go through with it, but he was testing Abraham's faith. We know that Abraham passed that with flying colors, not just because he was in the process of doing what God had called him to do, or he felt God had called him to do, but then at the end, when we get to the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Abraham so trusted God that he believed that if God had called him to kill his son, that he would have raised him again from the dead. And so he does test us, but he doesn't 
tempt. There's a difference there. You see, every trial that we encounter, every external difficulty will carry with it its own temptation. Temptation is something comes from within. It's an inner enticement to sin. And so while God may allow trials in our lives for our good to help us to grow, to help us to develop, to help us to show him how our faith has grown, he will not in the midst of that then ask us to do something contrary to what he wishes. That comes from the inside of our own lives. God may bring or allow trials, but he is not, James says, in any situation, the author of temptation. Now we know that. Because God is perfectly sinless. It says that right in that passage, that there is no way that temptation can touch him. There is no way that temptation can get to him. He is good and holy and righteous and pure always. Always. Never changes. Never does anything different than his character. Never acts contrary to who he is. He always is who he has always been and will always be. And that means he is good and holy and perfect and righteous. And sin and temptation is not even in the stratosphere of something he is able to do. Now, we don't fully understand that because every one of us in this room, we have character that we attain, that we aspire to. We have character that we're trying to attain. We have character, you know, character is who you are when nobody's looking. Characters, if you cut me, that's who I really am. It's how I really act. It's what I really think. And we all have these goals of who we want to be and who we want to become. But all of us know that we act differently than our character or what we desire for our character to be on a regular basis. And so sometimes it is true. You ever hear, that's just not who I am. I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I went there. That's not who I am. And when it comes to humanity, it is true that we act contrary to who we are sometimes. But God never acts contrary to who he is. Because his character is secure. Do you remember when Moses asked God for a name that he could take back to the people says, tell me who it is that's sending me to my people. Do you remember the response God gave? Yahweh, which means I am, or I am who I am, or I am who I've always been and will always be. My character is who I am. And so when you're in a trial and temptation begins to come your way, It is not from God because God is incapable of that. So where does it come from? Well, some people say, well, it comes from the enemy. It comes from Satan. And he's going to talk about in James 4. We'll get there in a few weeks. He's going to talk about our enemy and the temptation that comes from that. But in this passage, that's not his focus. He is not saying that the enemy is the one tempting us. In fact, he says that, it's not saying that he doesn't have something to do with it, but he's saying specifically that temptation in our lives, in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a difficult situation, the responsibility for that, where it comes from, where it originates from, is it lies directly with you. It lies directly with me. Scripture describes us as people who are utterly sinful. When God got ready to to bring the flood, he says he looked down upon humanity and everything in their heart was wicked. 
In Romans chapter 7 in the New Testament, it says that there is nothing good in me, in my flesh, in my old nature, in who I was before salvation. There is nothing good in me. And that would be a bad place to end the sermon, wouldn't it? But that's what Scripture teaches. And it's so countercultural. In our culture, everybody wants to blame God for making me this way or making me do that or feel that or blame other people if they would have acted like they were supposed to act to me or they're not doing for me what I need them to do for me or it's their fault, it's, it's their issue or blaming the enemy, well, the devil made me do it or, or blaming your DNA or your upbringing or your situation or your financial place or where you grew up. You blame everything that you can but yourself. And Scripture makes it very clear that the problem with you is you. It's us. The second thing we see in this passage is not only are we the problem, but the second thing is that temptation in our lives is tailor-made. Temptation in our lives is tailor-made. Look at what it says in verse 14 and 15. But each person, that's all of us, each of us, every one of us, is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by what? By who? By his own evil desires. If you're female, that that is all-inclusive. By her own evil desire. And so what he says is every one of us is tempted when we're drawn away, when we're enticed by our own evil desires. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. There are a couple of words that I want to focus on in this first part that tells us how temptation comes in our lives, how temptation comes to our our, our souls, how it comes to our inner being. And it's these words drawn away and enticed. Those in the original language are hunting and fishing terms. And the picture literally there is of a hook that is baited for a fish. It is enticed And then when the fish bites into the hook with the enticing lure or bait on it, it is pulled, the hook is set, and it is drawn away. When I was growing up, um, my dad and my grandfather would take me fishing on occasion. Um, My my mom worked for a company called Farm Bureau Insurance, and uh, she was one of the um, administrative assistants there. Back then they called them secretaries, but today they're... Administrative assistant. So she worked at Farm Bureau, and the agent at Farm Bureau was a guy named Bill Perkins, and he had this little cabin out in the middle of nowhere on a no-name lake that he'd let you go and stay in. That was one of the employee benefits. You got to take your family and go stay there every now and then. And as remember, that was my first fishing trip. We, my mom and dad and brother, we went out there. Actually, uh, called my uh, mom because this morning I, I was thinking about this story, and I was like, "There's a picture of this trip." And uh, so, you know, I texted my, my mom and dad at 7 o'clock this morning. They couldn't find the picture, but it's a beautiful picture. I'd love to show it to you. It's me holding a fish up in a Bahama Mama shirt. Anybody remember Bahama Mama shirts? That's right. That there were uh, Those were for people that could not afford Panama Jack shirts. You had the Bahama Mama. Um, I bought it at a used car lot. They were selling it out of a shed. I'm sure it was completely legal and upright, all right? And so I'm holding that and sitting there with it, and, you know, and, and like just remember a fun fishing trip. And I remember about that fishing trip specifically, there was this little pier that was there. I mean, it wasn't like a long pier. It was just very short, a little pier there. And we would sit on that pier and fish, and that's the place. And I, I wasn't very old at all. And I remember sitting there with my dad, 
And we, you know, we weren't fancy fishermen. We had a cane pole and a hook on the end of it. And we stopped at Billy Bob's or Joe Dad's or somewhere and got a, a, a thing of live worms. That was our bait. And I remember sitting there with Dad as we, as we put the hook in the worm, you know, for the first time. And everything spilled out on my hands. And I was done for the day. I thought, I don't need to do this anymore. And you fight through it, and you catch fish, and it's a fun kind of thing. And you know, and we, that's mom. We would go. My grandfather. We wouldn't. We didn't have a fancy boat. We had a boat. You would put a trolling motor on, and you'd sit in the boat and hope it wouldn't sink before you got back to the shore. That was the whole purpose. We if we called any fish, that was great. And we'd go with my grandfather, and my dad worked with a guy named Pee Wee that always had amazing stories that five year olds probably shouldn't hear. And he would tell those stories while we were fishing. And me and dad and Pee Wee and Gramps. And I love those days. But we were not sophisticated fishermen. Every hook we had had a worm on it. Whether we were fishing in a pond with crappie or bass or cat, it didn't matter. There's going to be a worm on it. But there, I don't know if you know this. There are sophisticated fishermen out there that know how to catch whatever you're fishing for. And they'll use some 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 high-end spinnerbaits and lures and you can go to bass pro shop and there's a wall of baits and lures and you can grab specific insects for specific fish i mean a couple of years ago we went out on old hickory lake with some friends and we got ready to and they were going to fish for catfish and they brought out some rancid liver and said this is what they like none of us on the boat could stand it put it on the hook put it down in the water Eli had a catfish in about a minute, all right? And so people know this is what they like. This is the bait they use. Certain fish have certain bait. The picture in James is that temptation in your life, because it comes from your own evil desires, knows the kind of bait that you like. And when you set your mouth on that bait, it grabs you and pulls it is tailor-made for you. I don't know whether you know this or not. Have you seen the craze with... Anybody here done the 23andMe or the Ancestry DNA where you send your saliva off and it tells you what part of the world you're from? Anybody? None of us. Good. We're not in the federal database. That's good. All right. Um, we have some. We had several in the first service that they had done that. All right. Todd, have you done it over there? Todd's done it. All right. So... You don't, you don't know what I'm talking about though, right? Where you put your, you know, I don't know how they get it. You swab your cheek or you, you know, spit in a cup. I don't know what, what happens, but they send it off and they get the response back and it tells you you're certain percent that and from here. And they've now introduced new things where it'll tell you what foods you probably like or don't like. And what you may be sent, I just prefer to eat to find what I like and don't like, but they'll do that for you. But you know the goal of all that, right? The goal of all that, one of the goals, is tailor-made prescription medication that will specifically be just for you. I'm sure that will be cheap and inexpensive for all, but that's the goal. They're going to take your DNA and give you tailor-made medicine. Now, some of you get on social media and you'll click once on an ad for something you see on there, and then it shows up on every website you go to. And over time, based on what you click, based on how you interact online, based on what you send some time looking at, they will tailor make the advertisements for you. It's been around for a long time, and it's not the newest technology. That's what temptation does for you. 
Now, here's the thing. The enemy does that to us. But part of it is because where does temptation come from? Us. And when it's coming from us, we know our trigger points. It says in that scripture that temptation comes when we're enticed and drawn away by our own evil desire. So let me ask you a question. Do you know what your bait is? What it is in your life that leads you down the road of sin faster than anything else? Is it success? Maybe it's success for you. Maybe it's providing for your family. Maybe it's the success of your kids. Maybe in academic circles. Maybe in sports circles. Maybe just in life in general. You've got certain goals and you're trying to get your kids. You're going to do whatever it can to get your kids that direction. Or for your own life or for your grandkids. That you have this idea of how you're going to be, where you're going to get to, what it's going to look like. And you're going to sacrifice everything you can to get there. Maybe it's recognition, people recognizing who you are, people understanding who you are, people seeing the job that you're doing and like, man, I'm going to do everything I can to be recognized as a hard worker or as somebody that is compassionate or as somebody that is fill in the blank. Or maybe it's companionship. I just want to spend life with somebody and I'll do whatever it takes to get there. What are the triggers in your life? What are the bait in your life? And then scripture tells us what happens once the hook is set and once we are drawn away. It's this picture of deception leading to desire, leading to disobedience, leading to death. It says once you're deceived, once you give in, once you decide that you are going to give in to that evil desire, once that happens, you give birth, it says, to sin. The idea there literally is once you allow sin into your lives, then it begins to work through your life. And when it is fully grown, it brings death. Now, if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, that does not mean it can take you away from your Savior. It does not mean it can lose your salvation. But it does mean that it may destroy relationships or testimonies or joy. It says that sin begins in temptation in us. And when we, this tailor-made temptation, give into it, it leads to a place of destruction. If you use the quote before, but Adrian Rogers used to always quote this thing, that sin is one of those things that looks great when you enter the building, but it will take you farther than you ever anticipated to go. It will cost you more than you ever anticipated costing, and it will hurt more than you could ever imagine. So where's our hope in the midst of it? Well, the hope in the midst of temptation is found in our good and faithful God. I love that James starts his letter with just real life. That he is down in the muck and the mud of real life with us. Trials are coming, he said. They're going to happen. When they happen, use them as an opportunity. In the midst of your trials, God's not going to send it, but temptation's going to be there. And it's temptations that are going to be tailor-made for you. And you've got to be ready for it. You've got to be prepared for it. You've got to know your own heart. You've got to be willing to, to end when it comes quickly. But then he gives us the hope in verse 16. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, by his own choice he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
He says, listen, in the midst of your temptation, in the midst of your trial, you must learn to trust in the good and faithful God. And even in this little passage, he gives us three things about God that we can see very quickly. And the first thing is this, is that our God has goodness that is unchanging. He tells us right there from the Father of lights, a a picture of good things coming. Says, who does not change like shifting shadows. He doesn't just change on a whim. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is who he says he is, which means his goodness is always his goodness. He is never looking for a way not to be good. He is always good, has always been good, will always be good. When we sing that refrain again and again and again, God is so good. We could sing it from now to eternity and it would be exactly the same in eternity as it is here because our God's goodness does not change. He is good all the time. And all the time, He is good. God is good. We can trust Him. We may not understand it, and I'm not saying it's easy to understand trials and temptations, but we can trust that our God has our best interest in mind. In fact, there are some of you in this room who have given in to a temptation again and again and again and again. Maybe yesterday, maybe last night, maybe this weekend, maybe this week, and you think, how in the world am I ever going to get through it? And part of the reason you're still struggling with temptation, not the whole reason perhaps, but part of the reason is because you're scared to death to go to God who already knows what you've done and admit what you've done because you're scared of what he will think or do or react when our God has already told you that he is good, that he wants what's best for you, and that when he is trying to root sin out of your life, it is for your good and for your benefit, not for your hindrance. And then the place when we fail that we must run to first is the cross of Jesus Christ where our sin has already been forgiven. In our failings, we ought to run to God, not away from him. His goodness is unchanging. The second thing this little passage tells us, these three verses, is that his goodness is undeserved. It tells us right here, by his own choice. It wasn't because we made him. It wasn't because we figured some things out. It wasn't because we were just good enough. It's his own choice and his choice alone. There is nothing in us that required him to be good to us. In fact, it tells us what the goodness showed itself. By his own choice, what did he do? He gave us birth by the word of truth. The word of truth there is the word of the gospel, the reality of Jesus Christ coming to earth, dying for our sins, being raised again from the grave and offering us a salvation in him, a permanent home with him. His goodness is unchanging. His goodness is undeserved. And the last thing we see here is goodness is unending. It tells us that we would be a first fruits. Now, he is speaking specifically to the Jewish believers scattered throughout the world at this time. And what he's saying to them is, you are the first of a family that will extend to eternity. The idea for us in this passage is that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, when we follow him with our lives, that we serve a God that is unchanging and will give us a place with him forever. In the first service, um, Jimmy and Kirsten Lunder sang um, as an offertory song, the, a new song by Andrew Peterson called Is He Worthy? 
It's a beautiful song. If you haven't listened to it, find it on Spotify and listen. It's a great song. It's been around for, I guess, nine months to a year now. But in the midst of that, there's this really cool, it's a refrain. And so they ask a question and then people, people respond. I don't know if that's what a refrain is, but that sounded like what it would be. And so, it's, you know what I'm saying. Like they ask a question, somebody sings a response, right? And so they ask all these questions. Are, you know, are you tired of the world the way it is? We are. You know, that whole thing. Do you think that God's going to change? We do. The whole thing goes through it. But there's this place towards the end where it says, does God desire to live with his people again? And the simple response is, he does. Man, there is nothing that ought to be more encouraging than that. Because you see, no matter what trial we go to, no matter what temptation we face, our God is going to set everything right. And one day there will be a place where there will be no trials, and there will be no temptation, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. His goodness is unending. And so here's what I want to tell you. Because in a room like this, 100% of you are dealing with temptation this week. I said in a room like this, if all get into any room with any number of people, 100% are dealing with temptation. And this week when you encounter temptation, you remember you can't blame it on somebody else. It's not their fault. You can't blame it on God. You can't blame it on the enemy. You must look inwardly. And in the midst of that, trust that God will see you through. And I want to give you four practical things as we finish about temptation this week. If you didn't write anything else down, write this down somewhere, all right? Four practical things for temptation. The first thing is, if you want to avoid temptation or resist temptation in your life, develop your relationship with God. Run to Him. Pursue Him. Love Him. Read your Bible. Pray. Spend time with fellow believers. Admit to fellow believers areas where you struggle and need help. The second thing is, be prepared. You know the areas of your life that lead you into temptation more easily. You know the situations in your life where you find yourself where you're more easily tempted. You know the areas and the habits that you engage in that lead you towards temptation more easily. In the midst of that, realize what it is and avoid them. Stay away from them. Don't go towards them. Don't talk to that person this week. I don't mean don't shun people, but if it's a situation where they're going to get you mad all the time, then maybe just take a break. Don't turn on that television channel. Don't look up that internet site. Don't even get on the computer. Just avoid it. Thirdly, deal radically with sin in your life. Listen with me. This is what Jesus said. Jesus says if your left hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do with it? Tap it a little bit. Say, hey, got to do better next time. What does he say? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, what does he say? Look now, I don't need anybody coming in one-handed and eyeless next week, all right? Okay, that's not what's happening there. Well, the pastor told me to do this. But deal severely with sin. Don't treat it as a little pet or something you can kind of push over in the corner. I'll just kind of not deal with that for a day or two. Deal significantly with sin. I don't think we do that like we used to. When I was growing up, the big deal was everybody had CDs. Do you remember CDs? All right. Everybody had CDs, and we'd come home from youth camp, and there'd always be a CD burning party. 
Well, I ain't even listen to that music anymore. I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. We go out and build a bonfire. They bring their stuff and we're not doing that anymore. Right? We radically dealt with it. We're not going to do it anymore. People would throw things away. People would get rid of stuff. Now we just say, hey, well, well, you know, it's okay. It's under our, um, it's under our freedom. If it's causing you to sin, deal radically with it. And here's the last thing, and then we're done. Confront temptation at the beginning. Don't let it kind of fester. It's either Charles Spurgeon or Billy Graham, or Billy Graham quoting Charles Spurgeon that says, but I can't stop a bird from flying over my head, but I can stop it from building a nest in my hair. And the truth is, with temptation, you can't stop all temptation, but you can stop it from building a place in your life. When temptation comes this week, don't blame somebody else. Deal significantly with who you are and trust the Lord who is good to guide you through it. Let's pray together.